Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comics, mainly the British ones. I'm Eamon Clark, and for a third visit to the book club from all the way down in New Zealand, it is Peter Adamson returning. Welcome back, Peter. Hello, Eamon. Thank you very much and thank you for having me. We are crossing international time zones yet again. It's Saturday morning here. It's Saturday evening with you, I think, Peter. That's right. 9pm. I think we're, we're, we're 12 hours between us now. And we are deviating from the 13th floor or we're stepping off the 13th floor for a while, Peter, because um, you've chosen another book that's um, hot off the presses for us to talk about in a moment. But before I do that, let's stick with 13th floor, any other business for a moment. Uh, or should we say, like, at this stage of the agenda, it'd be matters arising, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> because the latest Smash special has Max uh, and the 13th floor in it. Have you had a chance to see that one? No. In fact, this is the first I've heard about it. I've been out of the loop this year. We've uh, Both Dave and I at Where Eagles Deer have been sort of pursuing other pursuits. Um, and... Uh, Gosh, I'd better uh, I'd better get cracking. Well, uh, what can you tell me? Well, I can tell you that in issue two of the current Smash specials, they are in the uh, tower block, and Max, the uh, computer, is of course there. And there's an appearance from Archie the Robot, a another classic British character from the sixties, of course. <laughs> and Max, see, I'll just say that Max sees possibilities in the met- metal body of Archie. Oh dear. Yes. <laughs> So there is being an asset casualty wasn't enough. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yes. (laughs) Um, So there is that uh, reappearance. And of course, I think the other thing that I should mention is that they've now um, announced that next year, 2024, we're going to get a complete reprint of Scream comic including all the covers and all the content in sequential order. But I, I guess not the ads and other sort of extra material. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interested in that one? Yes. Well, of course, a, a lot of it is actually sort of freely available and you don't need to look very far to find it on the web. Um, but I'm always up for a, an upgrade and an upscale. And uh, gosh, you know, with, the, with the, um, the material that's sort of been teased out over the past few years by the likes of Hibernia Comics, um, it would be really nice to sort of see if there was any extra content they could sort of add to to that collection. Yeah, there's some lovely stuff in there. Excellent stuff. So we may, there's still more 13th floor for us to explore at some point. Um, oh, yes. But let's get on to, <laughs> instead of adventures contained on one virtual floor of a tower building, let's go widen out our horizons. Tell us What's the book that's just come out that you chose uh, to come back to the book club with? Well, tonight, Eamon, I am going to be discussing with you Hell Trekkers uh, by F. Martin Candor, a prolific individual, and uh, Jose Ortiz and Horacio Alaya. Fantastic stuff. So there is a brand new collection out of this classic story from Progs 387 to 415, uh, this ran in 1984 and 1985 originally, 
edited by the mighty one himself, Steve McManus. Um, you've mentioned the creative lineup. Of course, F. Martin Kander, as we know, one of the many, many pseudonyms of the writing <laughs> partnership of John and Wagner and Alan Grant. Uh, lettered by the great Tom Frame and Tony Jacob. Um, so this is interesting because, as I say, it's literally out this week. Uh, we managed to pick up the digital copy on the day of release. Uh, it's out in a paperback. There's also the web shop exclusive where they've made it look like a classic Haynes manual, which is rather lovely. <laughs> yeah. Which, which introduces the other artist for Helltriggers in a way. Uh, Horacio himself. No, well, Robin Smith. I, I oh, of course, yes. Illustration. Yeah. Yes. I guess there's a story behind that. But I'm really glad to see that illustration being included because it does figure quite heavily in the uh, in the strip itself. Excellent stuff. So, um, we've, as I say, we've moved away from the 13th floor. Why the hell trekkers, Peter? Um, I didn't need to look very far when I was looking at the progs, which I do have, um, for this series to see why it made such a big impression on me. And uh, so you were saying the crossover between 1984-85 is just one of those golden eras for 2000 AD. Um, There are some terrific stories around it. Uh, There's Nemesis Book 4, I think. It's the Gothic Empire. That there's Judge Dredd and City of the Damned, a little story called Hello Jones, um, and even Rogue Trooper comes to its its Traitor General story arc close. So sitting in amongst their Hell Trekkers is in some really, really esteemed company. Um, but despite all of that, I don't think it manages to be overshadowed by them. It's it's world building, uh, which I'm I love, uh, uh, particularly in the world of Dread. And it's something that really, really, I think, suits the uh, the weekly format, the episodic format. In fact, if anything, I would suggest that maybe reading it all in one fell swoop is not how it should be read. Okay, interesting. Well, I'll ask you about that again in just a moment. Um, set us up with the plot uh, as beautifully captured on a colour two-page spread by Jose Ortiz. What is the uh, the setup for uh, Hell Trekkers? It's pretty simple, Eamon. Uh, these are the stories of a, a group of, I guess they're pioneers, uh, who are leaving the walls of Mega City One in search of the new territories. Uh, 2,000 kilometres away and to the west. Um, sort of, I think the Black Hills of Dakota is, is, is where the new territories are situated. Um, and it's essentially a wagon train through the coast of the earth. Uh, and um, we've, co- of course, um, encountered the coast of earth before through Dread's eyes, but this is quite a different prospect, I think, through the eyes of um, Mega City One citizens. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's, a, it's a more exciting story for it. And almost revisiting the cursed earth from those very early Dread, Dread, Dread stories, the, you know, um, of the Cursed Earth saga, isn't it? Mm. It's like another look at it. Yeah. Absolutely, yep. Yeah. You've got a lot of the um, a lot of the familiar tropes of the of the Cursed Earth. You have uh, you have dinosaurs, you have mutants, uh, you have the Mississippi River and its barges, you have dog vultures. But if anything, I think um, Helltrekkers is a little bit less outlandish than um, than all of this weird and wonderful. Um, early dread epic 
and is a bit more concentrating on the grind of just getting through there um, and surviving each encounter to go to the next. Uh, these people on the on the trek, um, the hell trekkers themselves, are largely untrained. Um, there are about 111 in all when they set out in 28 rad wagons. Um, the rad wagons themselves look a lot like the covered wagons of of the of the old west, and it's sort of within those tropes that that hell trekkers is told as well. There's very there's a very frontier style and aesthetic to it. I don't think anybody wears knee pads <laughs> at all. No. And um, I'll mention two things. Firstly, I'll say in view of what they're going to go through, life in Mega City One must have been pretty tough for these guys, for them to set out on this journey. <laughs> uh, we will, well, so they say. <laughs> yes. We will come to the survival horror aspects of Hell Trekkers. But also, in terms of yeah. personnel, we were looking before we recorded that it does include uh, a star scan by Jose Ortiz from Prog387, which helpfully gives us the breakdown of the 28 vehicles on the Hell Trek <laughs> and the, the roll call, doesn't yeah. it? And very functional it is too. Uh, I think it, it even maybe has space for you to uh, cross off names, uh, <laughs> if you like, and if you're so inclined. <laughs> I was always tempted to, but never wanted to spoil my progs. Um, but yes, um, and and as you say, 111 names, some of them figure uh, more largely in the story and some of them are, 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 I dare say, they're almost there to, to make the numbers and to, and to provide statistics at key points. So Alan um, and John put these group of characters through the ringer um, yeah. on the Hell Trek. Um, tell us a little bit about some of the... You've mentioned some of them, the Cursed Earth ones already, but there's some particular hazards that they will face uh, along the way. Yeah, because, of course, it's a radi an irradiated wasteland, um, which is so, so 80s. Um, and so acid rain features quite heavily. Um, you've got your usual hazards of, um, of uh, you know, these, these pioneer trails of disease. So in this case, it's... Uh, it's black spot, I think black scab. Sorry, black scab. <laughs> Getting my franchises mixed up. Um, and uh, oh, uh, and the muties, of course. I mean, arguably, they're sort of standing in for something a little bit more Western-oriented. Um, certainly, you know, the DNA of the story would cast these with um, with Native Americans, maybe. Uh, but we're in dreads world, so muties they are. Oh, and uh, of course, the landscape's ever changing. <laughs> Yes, uh, and so, quite a lot of lava in the uh, post-apocalyptic North America, it seems. Yeah, who, who would have thought that Nevada had that future in it? Yes. <laughs> the Slough of St. Louis and uh, the Ohio Dust Bowl. Uh, it's, it's, it's always intriguing to me to sort of see what happens to future America in, in Dred's world, and, and some of it's completely outlandish, but they do well to sort of furnish this 2000K trek with plenty of natural hazards. And I do quite like that the, the, the fact that these hazards are, they're natural, you know, um, there are no uh, skies full of, um, uh, full of floating rocks as there were in Dred's time between megacities one and two, at least not that we see. Not on this particular route that the Hell Trekkers are on. Um, mm. 
You've mentioned that it's, you know, perhaps works best as an episodic adventure. Um, we get to meet and learn to sort of like know a great number of the Hell Trekkers themselves. Uh, the attrition rate is devastatingly high. Any favourite <laughs> any favorite characters, uh, groups of characters, first of all, before we get to favourite demises? Yeah, because we will get there. <laughs> um, well, I think, I mean, obviously we're supposed to root for, uh, root for the Ruds. Um, Judd Rudd is the, the patriarch of the, the lead wagon, although he really fights to, to achieve his position of leadership in the train. He has rivals in a, I mean, can you have a mega city hillbilly family? Apparently. Pretty <laughs> much the closest you're going to get is, is the Nebs, who, I don't know if you see it, Eamon, but to my eyes, have more than a passing resemblance to another sort of hillbilly um, uh, family from, from Dred's history. I think even the hats are similar to the Angel Gang. The Angel Gang on the Hell Track, but not quite as deadly, perhaps. Not <laughs> <laughs> um, and I have some personal favourites. The, um, the, the Scar Girls are probably one of the, one of the other prominent families. Um, they're picked away. Um, but they're highly resilient, and there is no patriarch in that family. So uh, um, uh, the mother, Scargill, is a really formidable character in it. And uh, um, spoilers, uh, really proves herself <laughs> towards the end. Yeah. Um, but, but the names are um, a very, very um, mega city wash, I think. You know, there's the, there's the Hemingways, there's the... Um, the the Bugners, um, who are always uh, sort of introduced by the uh, by the father of that family, who has a a speech impediment, so it's never the Bugners, it's it's the Bugners or something like that. Um, entertaining. Um, I will say that um, in the lead up, I had a we listened to uh, Conrad and Fox talking about this on Space Spinner two thousand, and they had a similar take to one particular wagon as I did at the time. And that's um, uh, unfortunately the Kush um, wagon, which is, I think we're supposed to assume that they're Chinese or Asian mega city one um, citizens, and that's that's not aged well. No. Um, um, but are they, um, uh, but their role in the story is actually quite small. Um, and and ag- again, around them, all of these outlandish characters, there's a there's a sort of a hippie commune. The, there's a uh, there's a religious family and there's the Klimps who have a mutant child in uh, Crustacea Klimp, um, sort of a crab-like wee girl. Um, and who, of course, uh, just slightly, you know, um, well, it's spelled out for us that they have to leave Mega City One because they've had a mutated child. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, m- most of the um, most of the families just seem to be. Um, out there for a better life, but these guys have a, uh, as you say, the Glimps have a um, have a very clear um, motive, and they battled a bit of that prejudice along the trail as well. And as you say, the Kush um, sort of vehicle and the Kush family, thankfully, not in it too much because they mostly keep themselves to themselves and just like stay mm. inside their vehicle. But it is. It is that again, that um, not aged very well, slightly unfortunate stereotype um, Chinese family um, from the 1980s and earlier in comics that perhaps, as you say, yeah. looks a bit unfortunate now, doesn't it? 
Yeah, yeah. Um, there's probably a whole episode we could talk about <laughs> of uh, you know the the uh, the rendering of of other cultures in British comics of the 70s and 80s and late 20th century. But um, as you say, they don't they don't make a big impression in the story. Um, they're there for a few panels, in almost sli- a punchline at the end. Yes. In slightly more fun, as you say, John and Alan, um, as ever, raid in popular culture for names um, mm-hmm. and possibly for inspirations for characters. You've mentioned we've got Hemingway's, Bur- uh, Bugner's, Scargill's, all names yeah. that were pretty well known at the time um, from you know politics and popular culture. They also, I think, in Lucas Rudd, who becomes... the Well, in fact, there's two leaders. There's a Trek guide called Quint... Um, yep. which feels like it must be a nod back to Jaws and Robert Shaw's character. Of course, yeah. And then Lucas Rudd, uh, in the way that Ortiz and Lalia draw him, um, I personally sort of cast an earlier, uh, an earlier era Charlton Heston. <laughs> you could see him setting oh. out on the hell trek. Yeah. Well, I guess if we could talk about some of the um, the inspirations for this, or at least some of the, the perceived inspirations for the story, you would be casting back to some of those earlier Westerns, and, and probably the more recent one would be um, The Way West was from 67, and that has Kirk Douglas in it. And I can see Kirk Douglas. Oh, okay. Cool. A younger Kirk Douglas. Uh, but you've got Robert Mitchum, uh, Richard Widmark, and then earlier um, John Wayne is in... Um, and a much earlier one, sort of the 1930s, called The Big Trail, which was apparently a bit of an influence on the Way West. But I think the Way West is, is you know, there are some story beats there which seem to echo in, uh, in Hell Trekkers as well. You could have fun with casting. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I don't think I've ever seen an episode of the TV show Wagon Train, but I know that was very popular as well, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, though, no, nor me. Um, and, and for what it's worth, um, Fox and uh, Conrad talking about um, the Oregon Trail, it wasn't part of my schooling, so I had to do a little bit of research on that, <laughs> as well as the Donner Party. Yes. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> um, which, uh, which, which looms large, but fortunately um, not the same story beats. Um, favorite characters, yes. Favorite demises, let's say. Let's say, yeah. you know, this does become, as I've said, a survival horror comic, um, and there is a weekly attrition. Um, any particular uncomfortable or horrible demises that stood out for you? Yeah, plenty, Eamon. Um, and and these actually did sort of start to stray over into the favorite page, and then had to really think to myself, do I really want that on my wall? Um, <laughs> fantasy or not um, so what have we got um, uh, I think some of the big moments so that one of the first um, deaths is young uh, young Wayne Scargill who's a friend of um, Lucas Rudd's son Bud and he gets the flesh treatment I guess is probably the simplest you could call it um, ripped apart by not one but two T-Rexes with only his um, onomatopoeic screams to, uh, to cover his, uh, his gory demise um, Gertrude Tosh um, succumbs from a red wagon crash. Uh, she escapes, the only survivor, but she's on fire. Um, but the fire gets put out by acid rain, so you know there's that. Uh, but then we sort of basically see her melting in the rain, which is just horrific. Um, 
and it's not all good people who who meet their end. Um, probably the other one that I'd really be thinking about would be I think it's Titus Neb, um, who uh, who gets some sort of frontier justice. He um, he causes the death of a few hell trekkers uh, with his um, trigger happy ways to the mutants and uh, um, push comes to shove and and uh, he's literally shoved out to the mutants by uh, by Lucas Rudd and. Um, finds justice at the end of several pointy spears uh yeah it's there's actually what, there's actually one other death i'm thinking of Eamon, <laughs> and we don't really see it and it's another sort of singular character and that's um um rollo peterson oh yes poor rollo in his yeah. moped yeah rollo's rollo sets out um exactly as he means to go on ill-prepared and ill-equipped where everybody else has got this heavily armoured, spiked rad wagon with its own radiation showers and and, and decontamination areas. He's in a moped. Um, the tyres burn off in two days. <laughs> um, he's running on rims, and I don't think he even makes it halfway before he uh, he succumbs to um, uh, to a radiation cloud, dies on Heartbreak Ridge, and has a half life of fifty thousand years. But all of that is told in retrospect in Rudd's diary which sort of, to me, gives it a bit more of sort of poignancy as he's sort of a footnote by that stage. It's not a, it's not a dramatic death, but it's very sad. And on that theme, um, I was also struck by um, a later episode where a small group of the Trekkers decide to take a perhaps ill-advised shortcut. Oh, my God. And yes. when they <laughs> reunite with the main train of uh, Radwagons... Um, They've all died apparently of fright, but we never find out why. And no, <laughs> a great horror trope in a way, one that they don't they don't resolve. They just like it's left there dangling for us, isn't it? Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad we don't find out. I mean, you could possibly, you know, was there a was there a dark judge at large because there's form there for uh, for red wagons um, falling falling prey to at least judge death, but it doesn't really work in the timeline. Um, yeah, what could it have been? It's a, uh, it's it's one of the eeriest things of the story, and it's held right through to the end. Yeah, um, yeah, and dramatically, it's very interesting as well. You, you know, as as we've covered, they all of the um, the pioneers leave from Mega City One, and and the question of was it right to have left in the first place does haunt Lucas Rudd through the story, and that's one of the the, the, the crisis points because there's another crisis that afflicts him pretty much just before that um, and he's just at the sort of lowest point where he's thinking you know this has all been for nothing and then these wagons come out of the mist presumably intact uh, barreling on with uh, with nothing stopping them and, and of course we, we see why now um, I keep saying this is like a survival horror. This is John and Alan taking a group of characters, absolutely torturing them on a weekly basis. Um, recently, we've been talking a little bit on the podcast about some of the differences or some of the perceived differences between girls' comics and boys' comics, with boys supposedly wanting adventure and action and girls wanting mysteries, but also this idea of their tormented... Uh, heroines in their character in their comic strips. 
This seemed to me, reading it this week, um, which I think probably, I think it's the first time I've looked at it since it originally came out, that this seemed to me to be the torment and suffering um, in a boys' comic um, on a weekly basis in the pages of 2000 AD. Did you sort of, did that, did you notice that at all when you were reading it? Um. I, I wouldn't have made the connection back then with girls' comics, but certainly, um, yeah, the way it plays out, that, that it's, it's not building to a great crescendo. It's just something to be endured week upon week. Um, and, and you have that diary format, and it's, it's just, I guess it's just coincidence and, and sort of happy timing that, that it has the Ballad of Halo Jones, which is also has a, a, a diary format as its, as its narrative um, style does um, you know does eke out the story rather than make it a big flashy thing, which is no small thing given that it's got dinosaurs <laughs> and the same dinosaurs they're tracked by these glow dinosaurs, which in case we forget at one punch stage are glowing in the dark because they're going through radioactive clouds so to to make that sort of a second tier thing to simply surviving to the next outpost. Yeah, that's... I can't think of much else in, in 2000 AD that I'd compare that to. It's interesting stuff. I mean, it is, as I say, um, grim. <laughs> the, yeah. the, the, the weekly, as I say, the weekly deaths um, and then what's going to happen in the next episode. Um, let me turn you to the artwork for a moment. We've got two artists to talk about particularly, although, as you've mentioned, there is some Robin Smith work hereabouts. But let's start with a favourite of the Where Eagles Dare podcast. And (laughs) Jose Ortiz does the first episode. And does he get... Did they get the colour centre page for the first episode by the looks of it? Yeah, yeah. Um, There are a few sort of colour pages um, sprinkled throughout the rest of the strip. The strip seems to sort of take the back pages of 2080, but so it, it does get that sort of coveted, you know, well, you're last in the last in the run and, and maybe you're going to be a bit of a downer, but we'll give you a colour page <laughs> as well. Um, we're fortunate to have Jose Ortiz pretty much setting out the stall. Um, Rad Wagon Society, he's, he's essentially casting the characters and giving us the likenesses that uh, Laia um, picks up on. And does a really, really fantastic job of. Um, I didn't even remember there being a join um, between the uh, between the weeks. Lovely clean line as ever, Ortiz. Um, yeah, beautiful first episode. Um, I'm not sure the digital reproduction of the colour work is stunning. So I suspect there's been some rebellions, sort of wonderful technology to clean that up. But, you know, the Ortiz pages and some Ortiz uh, dinosaurs to start us off with, fantastic. And then, as you say, we go straight into an Argentine artist, Horacio Lalia. Ortiz, sadly, no longer with us. Lalia is still with us at 83, thank goodness. Um, Good Yes. Um, that is good news. It is good news, yes, because he is terrific, actually. And he doesn't do an awful lot on 2000 AD he did Planet of the Damned and Holocaust in Star-Lord I can't really remember Holocaust um, mm. 
Did he do any work, do you know, for the new eagle, your your expertise area? I don't think we've come across him right. in those pages. Um, I could do a quick Google while we're talking. <laughs> well, that's, we'll perhaps come back to that. But here he, yeah. he takes over from episode two. He has got... Ortiz has some beautifully clear um, line work and slightly sparser black backgrounds, whereas Lalia fills in a bit more of the detail. He's slightly more towards the Carlos Esquera school of, of um, Inkid, I would say, um, with Ortiz being sort of cleaner, more sort of Bolland and Ron Smith, perhaps. Mm. Although mm. Lalia, I think, does a pretty good job, as you say, of taking the character designs and the dinosaurs that Ortiz has created and just going with them. And I don't know how they managed to get the artwork that he saw. It Maybe they were in the same studio at this time. But um, anyway, Lalia, I thought, was terrific as well. Um, and very sort of... It becomes very, in a way, European-looking artwork to me, particularly as he progresses through the horrors. Um, what did you make of Lalia's artwork? Um, well, as I say, I thought it was a pretty good match for um, for Ortiz. Um, it does have a slightly rougher edge to it in places, and I think the brush seems to be a little bit heavier, uh, or the pen, um, than Ortiz. There's almost a sort of a slightly sort of spatterish approach. Uh, reminiscent of Eric Bradbury um, but it suits the it suits the story um, it suits the grit and the grime which builds through the story uh, I think uh, the subtle changes he makes for example to Lucas Rudd uh, through the course of the trick he um, he reinforces that certainly by by the time they're sort of reaching the new, ter- new territories uh, Rudd's almost visually starting to look a lot more like Banjo Quint than he's been he, you know, the almost clean-shaven guy uh, he left um, Mega City 1 as. Um, yeah, I, I, I like it. I think um, there were probably a couple of times where I, I might have had to have sort of consulted those those back pages to sort of work out who was being depicted from some of the female characters. But um, it's it's one of those stories that sort of rewards you paying attention to names and faces anyway. So, you know, it's, I wouldn't call it a complaint. <laughs> and he's got some, he's got some fantastic um, renderings um, as well of, of the landscape. When they, um, when the hell trickers um, go through the acid rain um, phase, his rendering of that, of that deluge uh, is almost to sort of portray everything in a very scratchy, sketchy style, which does it does make it look like you know sheets of this horrible corrosive um, downpour on the page, and we can come back to the uh, the lava lunch, of course. But um, yeah, that would be the highlights. Um, the demise of the woman in the acid rain, uh, which takes place over three panels at the end of one episode, and then it says, "I notice." Next week or next prog, a farewell to Hemingway's. Nicely done, guys. Um, and then the first panel of the next episode, we get another sort of go at her dissolving in the acid rain. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I note because I was looking up Horacio Lalia's some of his work, and he did some, not surprisingly, some European horror comics. I think after this. And you could see 
or you can see online some of his beautiful horror black and white stuff and looking at these uh four panels of a woman dissolving in acid rain um mm. poor is it gretchen or yeah gretchen tosh gretchen tosh oh dear but yeah looking at her those panels I could see why he would later go on to do such great horror work. Um, I really enjoyed his artwork on this. I thought it was terrific in black and white. The odd colour page turns up, as you say, from the back pages and so on, but mostly just terrific black and white artwork of the worst, the worst horrors imaginable on a hell trek. Mm-hmm. Yep, definitely. Um, but when they do give him colour, you know, I, I don't know whether he's responsible for those splashes of colour, but, you know, his... The, the one cover he gets is really, really striking um, for its palette. And, um, and you know, a good, a good instinctive use of, of light and dark um, to, to, build, to build that picture. I, I often sort of ruefully observe that the, um, the pages of this sort of era in both Eagle and, and also in Scream as well as 2018, they're just absolutely cramming in the... Um, the panels here, so splash pages are, are not common, um, and and so it must be really really challenging for those artists to sort of um, depict what they can with you know a, a, a fair number of panels per page. Uh, he does a great job. And you've mentioned that we are introduced in the first episode by Ortiz to Quint and Lucas Rudd, and that Quint looks like. Uh, he's a guy who's seen some stuff, um, a guide <laughs> who's presumably survived one or more hell treks in the past. Yeah. And that by the end of the series, the clean-cut Lucas Rudd, who looking at him now in the Ortiz pages, I'm also seeing a bit of James Coburn in the classic mm-hmm. Carlos fashion. Maybe it's the mm-hmm. uh, the, ca- the sort of desert cap and the goggles. Um, but anyway... By the end of it, Lucas Rudd, as you say, is starting to look more like Quint, isn't he? Because he's now been through a hell trek. Yeah, yeah. Quint's arguably more satchel than man uh, <laughs> when, we, when he sets out. And um, there's a key line he says very early on to, uh, to Lucas Rudd. And he basically sort of says, you're not in a city now. Um, you're in a cursed earth and you won't get a second chance. And there's a telling moment almost halfway through their journey they haven't quite reached reached the uh the thousand k pole the halfway point but there's an incident at stinking creek with mutants and uh and rudd loses it in in a fit of retribution and and basically mows down all that same encounter that um that, that quint's demise pretty much starts to unfold and i thought the symbolism of him taking that line unwittingly um, bears out for the rest of the story. You know, he becomes a lot harder after that point, and meets uh, the, the justice he meets out is is um, is probably not Mega City One justice. <laughs> Just I'll mention Mega City One because on the very first page, Rudd says to a mm. uh, Mega City One um, judge on the wall as they leave, "Better to die in hell than live in Mega City One." Um, and yeah. die in hell. Be careful what you wish for. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it turns out to be prophetic. Uh, men and women who hated the city enough to brave the hell of the cursed earth radiation desert. 
Um, I don't know. I'm not sure whether I would have set out on the hell trek myself. Certainly not having read this. You know, if, you, if they'd had a chance to read this first, they probably wouldn't have left. No, you, you, you go in, I think, fairly thinking that um, certain character types are going to get an easy run. Children, for example. Old people, maybe. Um, innocence, definitely. Um, there's, there's no, there's really not cherry picking, unless, unless a crustacea glimp, of course. <laughs> But you, uh, your mention of um, your mention of some of the great cliffhanger lines, um, and there are some absolute pearlers. Um, a farewell to Hemingway's. They they deal these out with such relish. A taste of Wayne. <laughs> um, that's your lot spot, you, you, you know. Uh, and um, and uh, last of the red hot lovers. Uh, we haven't even mentioned um, Corky, the serial, um, oh, the yes. serial newlywed of the. Uh, of the um, of the story, surely a man who who threatens to be married three times is going to make it through the trick. But oh oh no <laughs> no 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 yeah uh, no indeed. Um, okay, well bef- the artwork is wonderful. Um, before we get to Gabriel Pages, let's go back to the episodic nature of this strip. Uh, mm. A weekly. Is it four pages generally, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. Weekly four pages. four pages of hell for the Hell Trekkers. Um, <laughs> you suggested that this one works better, possibly, if you, had re- if you did read this on a weekly basis rather than... Because in the last couple of days, as I say, this has just come out this week and we've sort of barreled through the digital quite quickly. What do you make of it as an episodic strip and why do you think it works better like that? I think the pacing of the story really means that it is sort of drawn out a lot more. Uh, I was surprised in rereading it that they travel 2000K, which doesn't seem a lot. Um, it is actually geographically accurate. Um, but the way that um, it becomes condensed or rather drawn out, I should say, um, as journal entries um, allows that sort of level of introspection on Rudd's character it's, you know, it, it's, it, it tells, it, it unfolds in a different way than, than we're probably used to in the action-packed world of Judge Dredd, for example. Um, people die off-screen. Um, people die in retrospect. Discoveries are, are, and mistakes are sort of made with the wisdom of hindsight. And, and that's the sort of thing that, that's the sort of luxury that a, that, that a journal narrative star can give you. And again, I think sort of condensing them in, in one fell swoop, they, to me, they sort of blur a bit more. I did read them in one go this time round, and it, mm. yeah, I think the first time round, waiting the next week to see who was going to make it through was much more of a visceral uh, exercise for, uh, for young me. It is interesting for us now that all this stuff gets collected for us and put out in nice, readily available formats. Um, uh, I, I deal with this slightly sometimes when I do my other podcast about British television science fiction, and we look at old series that then get collected, and you can sort of binge watch them. That often, 
the the weight, the, the the episode, and then having some time to breathe with that before you have to, you know, pick up desperately next week's issue. There was an advantage in that, wasn't there? There was a certain um, sort of joy in having to wait for the next one, find out who made it next week. Mm. Yeah, and maybe there is that element of sort of investing in the story a little bit more if you do have separate, if you do have other favourite characters. You end up sort of looking for them in the panels, and you've got a week to do that. Uh, if I could sort of draw a contemporary parallel with the ABC Warriors, I actually quite liked Mad Ron and Hitaki, the very temporary um, addition to the um, sorry to the ABC Warriors and the Nemesis strip. Um, but I think between them, they have something like half a dozen panels, and then that's their lot <laughs> spot. Uh, and um, yeah, that would have. That, I, I think that would have been disappointing to me at the time, but um, you know, being able to sort of pick out the pick out the trick as as we go, and uh, and follow them that way. Yeah, maybe it's a bit like following a serial soap opera rather than watching a movie. And um, you really get to know. You feel like you get to know these characters, which is slightly yeah. unusual for Mega City One citizens rather than judges. Yeah, yeah. I often think that Mega City One um, prides itself in allowing you to uh, admiring a very uh, intricate piece of art before squashing it, um, and and then moving on um, without much grace. I think with the with the Hell Trekkers, the characters do sort of um, evolve and they do show themselves a little bit more. We haven't talked about the Turtles, for example, who are probably the only religious family, um, and they have sort of a spirituality to them and, 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 and that they, they're the ones who preside over the funerals um, as they go through the trail and have dreams of sort of setting up a church and all of their experiences framed within, a, you know, as you would expect, a very, a very religious framework. And, uh, and yet that's sort of juxtaposed with the, uh, with the reality of the trek is that they, they start out burying the dead with ceremonies and, Rock of Ages and, and hymns and a gathering in Circle of the Wagons. By um, by the by the time they're sort of getting to the Nebraska Fault, people are just being dumped into lava pools, and everybody just moves on. They just want to get it over and done with. Yeah. Uh, we should also talk about Amber Rudd, um, Lucas's wife. Mm. She's got an interesting story, um, and that she sort of starts out being a, almost little more than a dispenser of red pills, but by the end, she's toting a gun as well and uh, getting her husband out of fixes. There's yes. little detail, yeah. but, um, but, they, you know, but they're important to the story. And when Rudd loses a family member, let's say, it's it's heartbreaking moment, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's his big crisis of, you know, did I do the right thing? Yeah. What, what was this all for? It was, it was, it's, he's, he's having his big existential moment just on the threshold of the New Territories. Okay, let's look look at the wonderful artwork and choose a few uh, Grail pages and covers. I will say that there was two front covers that are included in the trade collection. There is uh, Prog, let's have a look, 391, cover art by Robin Smith. There's a and Prog uh, 408 cover. The 391 Robin Smith one, I'll just mention, features... Another great joke on the front cover. <laughs> yes. <laughs> With a sort of top strap and bottom strap um, lettering. 
Uh, I'll let you do the punchline. What does a dinosaur call a hell trek? Meals on wheels, which is, of course, nonsense, Eamon, because they're all on tracks. <laughs> <laughs> Not even Rolos on wheels by that stage. Yes, this is true. <laughs> And we should probably mention Robin Smith, of course, um, uh, always doing wonderful art design for the prog in this period. And many of the covers we now know were actually based on Robin Smith designs. Um, so nice to see him. And, and it's his image that's used on the Haynes manual version, you tell me. Yeah, so this appears to be a hangover from um, the history of Helltrickers, which I, I guess... Um, we should probably briefly talk about as well. And Hell Trekkers was, uh, if I recall correctly, originally planned to be part of a fortnightly Dread title spun off oh, from 2008. Right. Yes, of course. Uh, along with, I think, the Anderson uh, story and I think Bad Company might have been one of the other um, series. So that might also explain why Ortiz is only in there for the first episode. That's, that's there essentially setting up the story. Perhaps at the time he was expected to um, uh, to continue, but of course history bears this out that the uh, the um, the mega project, to our great surprise, turned out to be a collaboration with the special with um, with Madness, <laughs> Mutants in Mega City One. Of course, yeah. So um, yeah, I guess that um, Robin Smith's um, artwork probably came about um, as uh, as as that. Um, and I sort of said that there are echoes of it in the artwork. I think in that first um, Ortiz episode, there's a shot of a rad wagon sort of three quarters coming towards the camera, as it were. And it's virtually a flip of the uh, of the Smith artwork. Uh, all done in an inimitable high Ortiz style, of course. It's not to cheapen the uh, not to cheapen the composition at all. So. So here we go. Tell us which you've yep. got these three artists to pick from. Who's it going to be? Well, um, all credit to um, Robin Smith, but I think I really do have to choose between Ortiz and um, Alaya. Um, Ortiz is really easy because we've only got the one episode to, to work with. But that opening um, double page of them leaving the walls of Mega City One, the landscape instantly changing to sort of the these twisted buttes and mesas of the cursed earth. It's just lovely. Um, as we know through the 13th floor and through his horror work, Ortiz is no stranger to sort of phantasmagoric landscapes, and it really suits the story. I'm a bit sad that we didn't get more of him, really. Um, but um, if that's my grail page for internal... So we'll give you that double-page spread from the start of the collection, the start of the trek. It's just wonderful. It is, it's got everything on there. It's got the characters, crustaceas on there. As you say, it's got the rad wagons leaving. There's a judge. It's got the works in that mm. one. Um, everything you need is there. Everything you need. It tells, sets up the whole story beautifully in that John and Alan way of, like, you know, we're going to tell you everything we need to know. Mm. What very about cinematic as well. very cinematic indeed? As even as you say, the skeleton in the fur in the sort of like left bottom corner foreground for us. Um, mm. <clears throat> wonderful work. What about the covers? Any of those take your fancy? So, uh, we've talked about the Robin Smith. The other cover is Horacio Lala, and a it is Lava Lunch, and that is my other grail page. Um, I get a bit of color. 
Um, hopefully the title Lava Lunch sells the story for exactly what it is. It's, it's rad wagons um, being completely consumed by rivers of lava in the Nevada um, drift. Rift. Um, and it's the, the poor Gup um, commune um, being overwhelmed. Um, lots and lots of red and orange and, and, um, and that single Lava Lunch exclamation across the page it's beautiful absolutely fabulous it is a wonderful cover by Lalia, which i guess must be his only 2008 cover and it is just a wonderful image um uh, as you say the the gups being consumed by the lava flow uh wonderful colors wonderful composition the 2008 title above it Everything about it is just perfect, really, isn't it? Mm, good betting average for just the one cover. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> so. it is. Yes, uh, one at bat, one home run. Uh, mm. um, I was very tempted by lava lanches as well, so I've gone back to, and I'll just try to see if I can find the page in the book. Uh, let me see if I've got my bookmark on it. Here we are. So, in the digital collection, pages ninety and ninety-one. Uh, of the Hell Trek, um, day ten, uh, and the opening two pages by Lalia of the Lava Lunch. Um, mm. We get a little bit more. We get the title. We get the little map. We get a a diary page by Rudd, and then we get to see the poor Gups being consumed by lava. What the Gup is happening, man? Um, just <laughs> wonderful stuff. The her horrified faces. Uh, yeah, it's styrene. Yes, styrene. Poor styrene. Um, it is wonderful. So yeah, I would take those two. I think as my choice. But your wonderful opening Ortiz spread and then the Lalia cover are just stunning pieces of work. I did notice on ComicArtFans.com that there are a couple of pages up there. Somebody called Daniel Ashton very luckily owns a couple of pages from the Hell Trekkers. Um, well done to him. Um, yeah. I hope they all the pages survive and are out there somewhere. Um, sadly, we know that's not often not the case from this period. Mm. Yes, I really must check that out the uh, the trade paperback and just have a look, do the comparison on the uh, on the original pages, see the tidy up. Yeah. So we'll just mention that it is available, obviously, from the 2008 store for eighteen pounds in paperback. There is the web store exclusive hardback for thirty pounds which has that Robin Smith-designed Haynes Manual-style cover. Um, lovely joke that you can do a Haynes Manual for the Helltrekkers. Um, and, of course, it is also digital for nine ninety nine, which I picked up this week and, uh, as I say, flew through it. Just a ter- terrific story to remind myself of the wonders of those mid-'80s when John and Alan were just firing on all cylinders and then matched up with two great artists to produce this wonderful tale anything else you wanted to say about it peter oh a couple of things uh, you've reminded me um that uh that robin smith um schematic as it were was really really useful for me a couple of years ago i actually foolishly launched on a uh, on a personal quest to make my own rad wagon um out of bits and bobs you wanted the real haynes manual if only i'd known um so that's sort of lying 
half made in the garage and um it's inspired me to um to get back into it so it might be a new year's all of the little bits of sort of shampoo bottles and bottle caps and things that were sort of assembling this uh this hopefully um um to scale version of the of the tree and uh, the other thing is uh the last um the last sort of cliffhanger caption slow slow quick quog slow so the quick quog is one of those terrain hazards that we didn't talk about it was basically quicksand is, as we know, the bane of all children in the 70s and 80s. Yes. Um, it was years before I understood what slow, slow, quick quog, slow actually means. Um, is it a foxtrot or a rumba? Something slow, like that. Slow, yeah, strictly slow. come dancing stuff. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Such was the impression um, it made on me that it actually did end up being a username for me on the, uh, on the 2018 forum for a while. And so the picture of, uh, of Lucas Rudd. Is the uh, is the avatar I used? Oh, nice! Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> and uh, I was going to say, as our friends at Space Spinner say, um, so Fox and uh, Conrad both sort of remarking that it's a real da- a downer, a bummer of a story every week. They still, nevertheless, really enjoy it, and and that's my take too. I don't think we have too many stories from that era of 2000 AD that are so unremittingly um, uh, brutal to its main cast. Uh, and yet keep you engaged. Yeah. So, uh, as I say, I've 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 enjoyed uh, reuniting with it, and um, yeah, I look forward to uh, being able to get the 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 trade in time when it makes its way all the way down to New Zealand. Um, hopefully, not too long before it gets to you. Well, sorry, in those um, in those same issues, Eamon, um Tharg addresses that in the letter pages of 2000 AD. There's a New Zealand writer who complains that the the, the issues always take three months to get to to our islands, uh, and uh, that the international that the competitions are never fully international. And, and Tharg res- responds, "The Sarge, the Sarge's idea will be programmed into the mainframe immediately." Sadly, it appears that there must have been a, a hard drive failure uh, shortly after because nothing ever improved. <laughs> so it'll be three months, as you such as life. Thug, honestly, making promises that he could not keep. <laughs> Would the Hell Trekkers, I wonder, make a good campaign for some form of role-playing game, putting a team of players through the hells of the Hell Trek? Absolutely, yeah, and and that probably was one of those ideas that actually fit the, uh, the the model making I was going to do. I'm not much of a gamer; I'd much rather make the models. But I thought, well, here's an idea for a skirmish game, so to speak, uh, that's absolutely set up for it. And I'm surprised that you know we haven't really had that much. Um, the hell tricker conceit has sort of reappeared through the prog every now and then, but they always come off second <laughs> second best in the fights, whether it's sort of lunatic judges and the raggedy man or judge death himself or um descendants of the uh, of the angel gang you might well have a game amen as a as a hell tricker but i don't think you're going to end well and i think the uh, the dice are pretty much loaded against you it is pretty loaded against those poor uh, the poor families on all those rad wagons um we won't spoil it by saying how many actually make it to, to the promised land, but uh, yeah, <laughs> and, and and they were some of the lucky ones. <laughs> yeah, they were the lucky ones. Great stuff! It was terrific reading it again, Peter. Thank you so much for choosing it and coming back to the book club. 
Thank you very much, Hayden. Um, and it's, as I say, it's been a pleasure to, to read it again and uh, to share this with you. We turn to uh, guest projects. Tell us uh, where, we, where Eagles Dare has got to at the moment. Yes. So as they say, it's at a very exciting stage, Eamon. <laughs> um, uh, our regular listener probably may uh, well be forgiven for uh, having deserted us in 2023 because uh, things um, did sort of take over in the real world department for both Dave and I. Um, and we managed to sort of uh, uh, put out a couple of uh, smaller episodes during the year. But I'm happy to say that we um, have another episode uh, which we're about to record and may be out by the time or this uh, this episode comes out or maybe due to come out. Uh, the exciting thing for us, of course, is that the next episode is uh, not only our 50th proper episode, uh, but we finally, <laughs> we finally reach the uh, the merger between uh, Tiger and Eagle. Very important to consider that it's a merger and not a uh, not your traditional hatch matched and dispatched. Or so we're told. <laughs> Great news, as they say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Max becomes the uh, the editor of of, uh, of Eagle, so you know, fun times ahead. You can't keep a killer uh, artificial intelligence down, it would seem. Max, irrepressible. You can't keep him anywhere. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. So yeah, uh, that's that's that to look forward to. And on your feed, I think the most recent thing, you covered the Scream holiday special. Mm. Yeah, so Scream had a, a, a bit like Roller Peterson. Scream had a, a little bit of an afterlife. Um, it ran for, I think, four uh, sort of holiday annuals after its untimely demise, and we're sort of halfway through them now. The next couple will sort of take on their own sort of life i think i think the last one we've done pretty much exhausts the supply of backup strips and um unused covers and things and so the first two are really really um uh are, are really interesting to have a look into that and just you know referring back to your uh mention of the the reprints hopefully they'll be addressed in that way too uh, but yeah uh, as um as we sort of drift away from the pages of screen we drift towards uh, this new a uh, young pup, uh, or not so young pup, in the form of Tiger, which is very sports-focused and, and quite a different prospect. It's going to take some getting used to. Mm, indeed. Well, look in the show notes for this episode or on the website for links to sofageddon.wordpress.com, uh, which I think is where we can find you, isn't it? Yes, yeah. Uh, probably best to find us on WordPress. Uh, we also do have a Facebook page. For the time being, we are on Twitter, but I think maybe we may not stay there for very much longer. Uh, I think we may um, expand our um, our meta presence, for example, and maybe look at Threads or uh, or Blue Sky. Uh, but certainly the Facebook page—that's where we put up our, our favourite um, pages, and we have a pretty um, good group of uh, of uh, readers um, following on and, and adding their content as well. It's very nice. And I remember, because I seem to remember you started as a sort of Doctor Who uh, behind the mm. sofa. Uh, and, of course, That's great right. time for Doctor Who fans at the moment with the 60th and the specials are on. And, in fact, the day we record in, um, we are expecting something rather special to happen on our screens later on uh, when the 14th will become the 15th. Um, exciting times to be a Doctor Who fan, Peter. 
Yes, it's an early rise for me, of course, Eamon. Uh, I've got to get up early in the morning to watch that. <laughs> if I'm going to watch it live, as it were. But yeah, um, the uh, the second coming of David Tennant, and and as as he's been called, RTD two and Russell T Davies uh, return. I've I've enjoyed it, but uh, yeah, we must look forward. Um, Judy Gatwa from well, from a few hours away, I guess. Yeah, and then Christmas, and then beyond. Unless they pull another surprise on us like they did before. <laughs> oh, I, look, I, I'm trying to avoid spoilers, but, but I wouldn't put anything past them. <laughs> They've done a very good job of keeping uh, keeping you know the lid on. Um, and I've actually appreciated it for that. I'm not much to sort of chase spoilers. So, uh, yeah, so that's been nice too. And we, we mentioned this before we started recording, how lovely to see, as all 2000 AD fans and British comics fans have noted, how lovely to see Pat Mills and Dave Gibbons credited a write-up at the front of the Star Beast mm. episode, uh, which was really lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, they've both contributed so much to, um, to the look and the stories of, 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 um, there we go, of Doctor Who off the small screen. Uh, those those early strips in in the weekly, and uh, you know, the, the work of both Gibbons and Mills highly in there, and of course Pat Mills has gone on to write um, a few big finishes as well. Uh, I I this couldn't have come soon enough, and uh, what a story in the Star Beast! What a what a great choice to sort of lead us into uh, the very short but very entertaining uh, era of the Fourteenth Doctor. Yeah, terrific stuff. Uh, and exciting times to be a British comics fan as well. So, yeah, great. Yeah. Peter, thank you so much. I'm going to let you get some go off and get some sleep before you have to get up early for Doctor Who. <laughs> as, thank you, Amy. As ever, I just find all the links in the show notes for this episode, uh, including to where you and Dave will continue the trek through uh, the New Eagle. <laughs> Don't call it a hell trek. Don't call it That's a hell right. trek, no. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> Thank you again, and uh, and all the best uh, to you, Eamon, and to and to everybody out there. And thank you to everyone for listening to Mega City Book Club. Find all the links at megacitybookclub.com. Follow on Facebook, Instagram, Mastodon, Blue Sky, Threads, Radwagon, and any other social media uh, <laughs> networks that have sprung up since we started. Uh, email me mcbcpodcast at gmail.com which is the best way to contact me if you've got a book you'd like to come and talk about and that's it for this episode until the next time that uh, Peter and I are dodging acid rain and lava it's goodbye from me (laughs) and it's goodbye from me (laughs) 